You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it is great to see you this morning. Ephesians chapter 1 is where you need to be, so if you want to go ahead and open up to that, that would be a good thing. And as you're doing that, I want to throw uh, this book out to you. We're going to encourage everyone in our church family to read this during the month of September. So it's called Reclaiming Adoption. I think we've got 40, maybe 40 or 50 copies out on the resource table, so you can pick um, one up out there. But uh, we are about to start a set of sermons on the doctrine of adoption and this idea of what it means for God to adopt us. That word adoption, you know, if you think of like big biblical words, it is probably at the top of the list of the words in the Bible that are like full and pregnant with meaning. So I could not be more excited about kind of wading into these waters, these rich waters of adoption with you. But I think it would be good for you if along the way you were doing it on your own as well. So this would give you kind of a way to do that. Um, And like I said, that would be out on the resource table for you. So with that said, let me give you, uh, let me start with four reasons why for, you know, a set of sermons on adoption. Like, why are we doing this? Why are we going to spend four or five weeks on this particular issue? So let me give you four of these reasons. Number one, why this set of sermons? First of all, I would say this adoption has been a neglected doctrine. It's been neglected. You know, so I, I, let me just kind of set up a scene for you and you tell me what you think would happen. Let's say that after church today, you got your crew of friends and you went out and ate. And so you're out eating somewhere and in the middle of conversation, randomly, without any context for anything else, somebody out of the blue says the word adoption. Now I want you to stop and think about what everyone around the table would instantly think when that word adoption was said. And my hunch is, my assumption is, that everyone around that table would first think horizontal adoption, like a human being adopting another human being, well before they would think vertical adoption, how God adopts us in Jesus. Now, I think the first thought we would all have is, who's adopting someone around here? If we heard the word adoption. Now, it's just interesting that that would be our first thought as a Christian when the best news in the universe... Like the best news you have ever heard from God is this pronouncement over you of you're a son or daughter of mine now. That's the best news you have ever heard in the, in the universe. If you're a Christian, that is the most important thing that has ever been said about you. It's the richest blessing, the best thing that has ever been said about you. And it's just interesting in light of that, how in most of our mind, we hear the word adoption. We don't think that first. We think horizontal first. Now, I think there's a few reasons for that. I'll just give you what I think is maybe at the top of the list is I think generally throughout the history of the church, there has been a neglect of the doctrine of adoption. And let me give you um, one part of the proof for that. A a guy named Philip Schaeff, who is a church historian, he wrote a massive book. It's 2,600 pages. It's called The Creeds of Christendom. And uh, in that book, he uh, went through all the creeds. So we're talking thousands of creeds, a lot of creeds in 1900 years of church history. And in all of those creeds in 1900 years of church history, he found six of them that talked about the doctrine of adoption. 1900 years church history of the thousands of creeds out there about what a Christian is. Six of them talk about adoption. Now, I I don't want to like fault the church for the last 1900 years entirely for that. You know, I mean, like when I think about the early church, they were trying to clarify some really big, important things like the Trinity, as a for instance, you take like the uh, Reformation church and the post-Reformation church of the 15, 16, 1700s, they were really, they had this huge fight to clarify what it meant to be justified 
before God. So there were some really big battles along the way that kind of diverted tension. So I think it was an unintentional neglect, but it's a neglect nonetheless that has caused severe damage to the body of Christ. That, that neglect of this doctrine. So that, that's the first reason, is it's been generally neglected. Here's the second reason. Is as a church family, I really, really, really want us to reflect God's heart for the orphan. You can't read the Bible without seeing how passionate God is toward the needy, toward the fatherless, toward the widow. It is as if in the Bible, God's grace naturally flows downhill into those people's lives. The fatherless, the orphan, the widow, the outcast, the other. His grace naturally flows downhill to them. Naturally. So you see it all throughout the Bible. And it's interesting in Psalm 68, 5, God is, is, is giving us a name to call him by in Psalm 68, 5. And here is the name he gives us to call him by. The father of the fatherless. Now, isn't that interesting? Like he's saying, if you want to call me something, here's your name for me. This is what I am. This is what I do. I am the father to the fatherless. So let's just take this and, and apply this to the world right now. Roughly speaking, it's, it's likely much higher than this. I'm just going to use a safe estimate. Roughly speaking, there are 150 million orphans in the world right now, packed into planet Earth right now as we sit here. 150 million. And can I just tell you that God's heart breaks over that? Like right now, God's heart is bleeding and grieving and is broken over that reality. And, and my hope is, is that over the next four or five weeks as a church family, that God would, would give us his heart in that. That he would awaken in us a similar brokenness and a bleeding heart and a grieving heart when we think about the plight of orphans around the world. When we think about the plight of the destitute, the other, and the outcast, that God would give us that same heart, that we would be a church for the fatherless, like God is a father to the fatherless. That, that we would reflect that. And let me just put all the chips on the table here. Uh, it, it is my hope that this would also set many of us in the room on a journey toward adoption and or foster care. So I just want to tell you that up front, that my prayer is that that's going to be happening for many of us in the room over the next month or month and a half. That God would be starting us on that journey to open us up to that, to walk us into that. Um, you know, I'm really uh, unashamed of saying that over the next 10 to 15 years, we are praying that we would have dozens and dozens and dozens of, fam of families within our church family who are adopting or engaged in the foster care system um, in the U.S., so, so we are all about that. We want that. We are pressing for that. Now, let me be clear on this. Not everyone in our church is going to be called by God to adopt. That's going to be some to engage in foster care on the frontline level. It's not going to be everyone. It's going to be some. But listen, everyone in our church is called by God to engage in the cause of the fatherless. Every one of us. Like the Bible leaves us no wiggle room in that. James 1, when it is defining, God is defining what like true worship and what a true like following of, of him looks like. Here's how he defines it. The first thing he says about it is people who are doing that true worship of me. The first thing you're going to see in their life is they're going to be people who visit the orphan in their affliction. 
See, it's not like he's leaving us like wiggle room in that. He's saying this is what legit faith looks like. It is doing that. Like legit faith has my, that same heart that I have. It reflects that same heart in the world. So I I just want you you to be upfront and honest with you. And we're praying for that. We pray that God would be setting our church on that trajectory of being engaged in the cause of the orphan. So here's the third one. So first, it's been a neglected doctrine. Second, I really want us to be a church who reflects the heart of God in in this issue of orphan care. And thirdly, and I'm talking experientially here, experientially. Experientially, I want us to live as sons and daughters and not as orphans. I want us to actually live like what God has said that we are. I can just close your eyes for a minute. Let me just say this verse over you. First John three, one, just, just hear this from God today. First John three, one, see, look, behold, pay attention, set your eyes on this. See this, see what kind of love the father has lavished upon you, has given to you, has poured out on you. See what kind of love he's given you. Where do we go to see that? How, How do we see that? The verse goes on to answer it that we would be called children of God. That we would be called that. I I love what one of the old Puritans said. He said that, you know, I think if, if you look around the world, there are many men and women who are absolutely in awe at like earthly treasures. But it is a rare find to find a man or woman ravished by this thought, that I am a child of God. And I pray that as a church family, we would be ravished by that. Experientially, like we would feel that deep in our bones that we are a son, a daughter of God. He is a father for us. Now, I'm about to to read a quote by J.I. Packer kind of dealing with this. J.I. Packer is uh, probably one of the, the best minds of the last century in the Christian world. He wrote a book called Knowing God years ago. In chapter 19 of that book, Knowing God, is arguably, I, I would say, is the best single chapter on the doctrine of adoption that's been written. It's, it's incredible. Let me give you a part of that. And I'm going to wear you out with J.I. Packer over the next few weeks, so just get ready for that. So here's what he says about it. This idea of living as sons and daughters of God. He says this. He's answering this question. What is a Christian? So, so what is a Christian? Now, J.I. Packer is about to answer this. This is not you walking into Starbucks, a guy has his Bible open, and you ask some random dude. This is, this is J.I. Packer, one of the best minds of the last century, about to tear into this question, what is a Christian? Here's what he says. The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as his father. The most fundamental thing that you could say about you if you're a son or daughter of God is that God is your father. If you're in Christ is that God is a father to you. He goes on in what is a power-packed paragraph to say this. You sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. Listen to this next phrase. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. 
Like if you want to know like where a person is spiritual maturity wise, how, how this person is doing, how they see, like if you want to get a picture of that, here's what you need to know about them. Here's what you need to see about them. Here's what you need to ask about them. What, what do they know and feel and see and think about God as father? He, he goes on to say this. If this is not the thought God as father that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life. This idea of God being father, controlling his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. I love this next phrase. Father is the Christian name for God. Father, it's the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. How well you understand Christianity cannot exceed, cannot move past how well you understand the fact that if you're in Christ, God has adopted you into his family, that he's a father for you. Now, I want to just tell you on a real pastoral level that my hope is that this set of sermons would be great for you and your heart more than anything else. You know, like I I am totally aware that in our church family, there are many of us right now who are in the midst of a lot of stress and a lot of difficulties. And that could be everything from grieving loss to financial strains and struggles to just the stress that comes along with living in a broken world. I am fully aware of that. And if that's you this morning, just in a difficult season, can I just tell you this? There is nothing better that you could do right now in your life, if that's you in this season, than ponder and think and meditate upon adoption. There's nothing better you could do with your time. Joel Beek, he wrote a book uh, trying to work through how the Puritans used this doctrine of adoption to encourage their people. I want you to listen to what he says. How, just on a pastoral level, how adoption intersects with your life and my life. He says this, Above all, the Puritans used the truth of adoption to transform God's needy children, broken and hurt by sin, to transform God's needy children through powerful comforts. And that's what adoption provides us. Powerful comforts from God. They showed how adoption comforts in the face of their unworthiness, outward poverty, the contempt of the world, afflictions, persecutions, and dangers. When oppressed with sin, buffeted by Satan, enticed by the world, or alarmed by the fears of death, believers are able to take refuge in their precious heavenly father by doing what? But by a believer saying, am I not still a child? And if so, then, then I am sure that though he correct me, yet he cannot take away his loving kindness from me. You see what he's saying? That for a Christian, this is great comfort to know that God's adopted you. That regardless of what's going on, we can always look up to God and know that we are still his child. That he's still a father for us so that regardless of what is going on, we know that a sovereign father is working for our good in all things. So I hope that over the next few weeks, God would press this deep into the bones of our church family. And here's number four. Fourth reason for this set of sermon on adoption. Fourth reason. And this is where we're going to stick today. Is adoption lies right at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I mean, it lies like right smack dab in the middle of it. Maybe you could think of it this way. Adoption is the gospel's highest privilege to you. Adoption is the gospel's most rich blessing extended to you and given to you. It is the best thing that God could give you, this idea of adoption. Now, let me, let me try to give some substance to that, like what, what I mean when I say that. The gospel is a big, beautiful thing. It is a wonderful thing. And that's why we use so many different words to describe parts of the gospel. So a word that you would hear us talk about a lot around here, if this is, you know, if we're in your church family here, uh, a word that you would hear us talk a lot about is this idea, big theological word of justification. So what does it mean to be justified? When the Bible says that we're justified in Jesus, what does that mean? Here's what the Bible means by that. That when we were born, we were rebels. We were running from God as hard as we could, as fast as we could, with a finger up in the air toward God. This was our posture toward God. Every man, every woman on the planet running as rebels away from God. And God takes us, us rebels. He drags us into the courtroom where God is the just judge of the courtroom. And God, the just judge is presiding over the case. And we, the rebels are on trial and we have been caught red handed. There, there is no arguing that we are guilty rebels, that we have fired the first shot at God. And here's what justification means. Justification means God, the judge looks at us guilty rebels And he slams down his gavel and he looks at us and pronounces over us, you're pardoned. All of your sin, all of your rebellion, it's all gone. It's wiped clean. But justification is even better than that. It's not just that that you are pardoned. It's also, justification is also that you are perfected. That all of my perfect attributes, all the perfect attributes in Jesus, his perfect obedience to what I told him to do is now credited to your account. So see, justification is not just that you're pardoned. The wonder of justification is God looks at us and says, I'm not just wiping your slate clean. I'm filling your slate with the perfect record of righteousness from Jesus. That's justification. And can we all agree that is a beautiful thing? But, but here's the truth. Adoption gets even better. So adoption, to extend the metaphor, God has just slammed down the gavel. You are not guilty. And more than that, you you know, you're pardoned. But more than that, you are also perfected. But adoption is now God disrobing. He takes his his robe of judgment off. He he walks out from behind the bench and he comes up to us. And he looks at us, the guilty rebel, who he just said, "You're, you're pardoned, you're now perfected. And he looks at you and I and says, now we're out of the courtroom and now we're in the home. This is what I want to extend to you. I want to invite you into my house. I'm adopting you. You, the rebel, fired the first shot. I'm not just wiping your slate clean, perfecting you. I am bringing you into my house. I am pledging myself for the rest of eternity to be a father to you. That's adoption. The richest blessing that the gospel offers. Listen to J.I. Packer take this and explain it. He says, adoption is the, bless- is the highest blessing of the gospel, higher even than the gift of justification, pardoned and perfected, because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. So, so he goes on to explain, justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law. It's, it's in a courtroom setting, this idea of justification. It's viewing, it's viewing God as a judge. 
But that's justification. Now, adoption, on the other hand, is a family idea conceived in terms of love and of viewing God as father, not as judge. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness and affection and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, and it is. We're pardoned and we're perfected before God the judge. It's a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater still. It's the highest blessing. It's the richest thing God could do for you. It's not just to pardon and perfect you, but look at you and say, I want more for you than that. I want you in my house. I want you to be my son. I want you to be my daughter. This is what God wants for us. So in light of that, here's what I want to do today. I want to run through six similarities, six similarities between horizontal adoption. So us adopting an, another human being, horizontal adoption and God's adoption of us. I mean, I'm praying that for all of us, this would be the start of that journey of God just blowing our minds with how gracious he has been to us to call us sons and daughters. So six similarities. Let me, let me run through these. Six ways that horizontal adoption is similar to, to God's vertical adoption of us. The, the similarities between, the, between these. Number one, Adoption is seriously planned. Adoption. It is a seriously planned thing. So if you have ever uh, encountered someone or know someone that has adopted another human being, we're talking horizontal adoption here. If you know of a person who's done that, you know that that was not just like a decision made on a whim. That there are things to plan for. There are things that you've got to do. There are questions that you've got to ask. There are books that you likely need to read. There are surveys that you need to fill out. There are home studies that have to be done. It is a seriously planned thing, this, this idea of adoption. It takes a while, typically, for that, th- you know, that thing to move forward because it's, it's, such, it's so rigorous in the planning that takes place to actually get to the point where you can adopt another human being. Now take that horizontal adoption component and multiply it times infinity. And that's the planning that went into your adoption in the mind of God. Ephesians chapter one, allow this to blow your mind about how pre-planned your adoption was. Ephesians one, look at verse four and five. Horizontal adoptions are seriously planned. How much more so vertical adoption? Ephesians 1, verse 4, even as he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. When were you chosen? When was his love set upon you before the foundation of the world? When were you justified before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him? In love, verse 5, he predestined us before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for what? He predestined us for adoption. Do you know how seriously planned your adoption was? Your adoption was planned well before your first sin. For the first time that you sinned, your your adoption was in, 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 you know, in play well before that. Your adoption was planned way before, you know, way before you were born. Before you were formed in the womb, it was planned way before that. Your adoption was planned well before, you know, you were a thought and a glimmer in your mom and dad's eye. 
Your adoption plan way before that, way before your parents' parents, way before creation, Genesis 1, your adoption was planned even before that. It's saying this, Paul's saying, your adoption, like God's adoption of you was this seriously planned. Before there was such a thing as time, God looked down and he saw you. And he said, I want him. I want her. I'm going to be a father for him, a father to her. I want them as a son and daughter before there was such a thing as time. See, Paul is showing us here that the God's adoption of you is not like react, you know, reacting sort of love. It's not like, a, well, they sinned, so now I need to do something love. It's not that. It's this initiating sort of love. The God's adoption of you is not because you were cute or you were, it's not the issue. It's, it's not in, it, you know, God's adoption is not because of something in you. It's because of something in God, namely incredibly free and sovereign grace and mercy. Now, here's what happens for most Christians when you read verse 4 and 5. Most Christians want to fight about those things. But can I just tell you, verse 4 and 5 was not written in the Bible so that Christians would have like conflict between one another on what it means. It was written in the Bible as a comfort to Christians. So that, that we would be a people who know this is how serious God is about adopting me. He planned it before there was even such a thing as time, before I ever existed. God set his affection on me. See, what verse 4 and 5 are showing us is that God rejoices in you. God wants you. God pursued you when you were a rebel. That's how much God loves you. That's what it's showing us. Maybe I could apply it this way. Horizontal adoption, this is the most typical way it happens. Most typically it happens as a plan B. We can't have kids, so we are going to adopt. But can I just tell you, you are not God's plan B in vertical adoption. You've always been God's plan A. From the beginning of time, he looked at you and said, I've set my affection on you. I love you. I want you in my house. I want you to be my son. I want you to be my daughter. That's the planning that went into your adoption. Here's the second one. So first, adoption is seriously planned. Here's the second one. Adoption is costly. Adoption is costly. Now, if you have been around someone that has adopted, you know that to be the case. Adoption is a costly venture. Um, I was talking to uh, Cody and Carly Skinner. They are a young family in our church that are in the process of adopting right now. And, uh, you know, for their adoption, it is like high 30,000s to make this adoption happen. That is a lot of money. Amen. For all of us, that's a lot of money to adopt another person. Horizontal adoptions are expensive. Now, it was funny. I was listening to a pastor talk about this. This pastor had adopted five kids. And he always, when he's talking about the cost of adoption financially, he'll always say something like, "Um, cheer up. It's really much worse than the financial cost. That, That the costs are actually a lot worse than whatever it's costing you financially. I mean, think about as a parent. Kids are expensive. There is no question about it. It's, I mean, it is ridiculous what they cost over time, isn't it? But can we all agree that the real cost of parenting is really not financial? The real cost of parenting is that you are intertwining your life with another human being saying, I am willing to bear your burdens with you. So this is how costly adoption is. Now, as costly as horizontal adoption is, it is that times infinity that we get to vertical adoption. So, so look at verse, look at Ephesians 1, verse 4 and 5, and just be amazed at what your adoption cost. Priceless, what, what it costs. Look at verse 4 again. Into verse 4, 
starts with two words into verse four in love verse five he predestined us for adoptions how did he do that so how did he adopt us? How, how did that happen? He predestined us for adoption as sons. How? Through Jesus Christ. Verse 7. Skip down to verse 7. So, so how, what does it mean through Jesus Christ? Like, what does that mean that he adopted us through Jesus? Verse 7 answers it. In him we have redemption. How do we have redemption? How do we have adoption? How are these things possible? Through his blood. That's how it's possible. It costs God his very own son to make you a son or daughter. Are we seeing how costly your adoption was to God? I mean, you, you cost a lot. You did. If you're, if you're in Christ, written over your life is this price tag. Infinite. Priceless. The cost of God's own son. God wanted you in the family so bad that he would slaughter his son to make it happen for you. I mean, that, that we need to feel that and to know that. That's how costly your adoption is. Let, let me apply it by giving you a, a quick story here. Several years ago, uh, I read an article, like it was a, an advertisement in, in, an, in an Atlanta newspaper. So it's in the advertisement section. This is going to be a little bit risque, so buckle, buckle in here. Hang with me. In an Atlanta newspaper advertisement. Here's the advertisement. Single black female seeks male companionship. Ethnicity is unimportant. I'm a very good-looking girl who loves to play. I love long walks in the woods, riding in your pickup truck, hunting, camping, and fishing trips. Where, where is that? Does that girl exist right there, first of all? Seriously. We keep coming here. Cozy winter nights, lying by the fire, candlelight dinners will have me eating out of your hands. I'll be, yeah, I told you, it's getting worse right here too. I'll be at the front door when you get home from work wearing only what nature gave me. I'm blushing, sort of, right now. Kiss me and I'm all yours. Call 875-6420 and ask for Daisy. That week, that was published, 15,000 guys called only to reach the Atlanta Humane Society where an eight-week-old little black Labrador retriever was waiting for him. (laughs) 15,000 guys called that number. Okay, now... That is one of a million pictures in our culture of just how much desperation there is to feel loved, to be loved, to be significant, to belong. It's one of a million pictures of that in our culture. And can I tell you what the doctrine of adoption tells you and I? God loves us this much that he would slaughter his son to make you his. He wants you this much that he would lose his son to make you his. So this is what the doctrine of adoption is telling us, is that God loves us that much. And and can we just narrow that down? Like, if you're in Christ, God loves you that much. God wants you that much. Adoption is costly. Number three, adoption rescues from terrible situations. 
So if you have been a part of a horizontal adoption or seen that, you probably have some sort of a framework to recognize that. So let me just kind of help in this. Um, I said this earlier, but as a low estimate, there's roughly 150 million orphans worldwide. Now just think about that for a second. Don't let that just be a, a lost face out there. I mean, think, think about the all 150 million people, that's faces that don't have like Christmas celebrations and gifts, don't have like birthday celebrations, don't have a dad to take them out on a daddy-daughter date, don't have mom to help them do this and that. Don't have that. 150 million people in that category of fatherless, of orphan. Every 15 seconds, another child in Africa becomes an AIDS orphan. Okay, now, now let this sober you. Of those 150 million orphan, uh, orphans worldwide... Each year, over 14 million of those orphans age out of whatever institutional system they're in. 14 million. For most of of the situations of orphans out there, that happens at the age of 16. They're out and good luck. I hope you make it. Now, let me just give you one context in Russia and the Ukraine and what happens to those 16-year-olds when they age out of the system and find themselves out on the street. In that situation, one in 10 commit suicide by the age of 18. 70% of those 16-year-olds that are turned out to fend for themselves in Russia and the Ukraine, 70% of those girls end up in prostitution. 80% of those boys end up in a life of violent crime. I mean, is that not just staggering? And I, like, there's a part of me that... I can't not see, like, my son or daughter in that. I was like, man, what if that was Caleb or Hannah aging out of a, of a system at 16 being left to fend for themselves? This is the sort of situation orphans are in across the planet, across the world. And it's easy to think about that just in terms of like out there somewhere, but that's not just an out there problem. That's why foster care and adoption locally is also very important. In the U.S., there's upwards of a half million kids in our foster system right now. In the way we deal with with, um, orphans in, in our context, upwards of a half million. And let me just give you some statistics on this. When, when sons and daughters age out of our foster system, kind of the, the situation... So when they age out, let me just kind of contrast general population to those boys and girls who age out of our foster system. General population of the guys walking around right now, 31% are going to have some sort of a college education. 31%. If you've got a mom and a dad and and all that's in place. If you age out of the foster system, that's a 3% chance. 3% of kids who age out of the foster system get a college education. In terms of being convicted of violent crime, in the general population, that is like less than 6% of the people in the general population. If you age out of the foster system, your chance of committing a violent crime and being convicted of it just moved to 42%. Almost half of those who age out, that's going to be a reality for them. And and all I'm trying to say here in, in saying all of that is horizontal adoption, it really rescues. Like it really takes people in phenomenally terrible situations and rescues in the midst of that. Now, let's just take that on a horizontal adoption level, which is very true. And when we put that in terms of vertical adoption, it becomes even more true. 
and what God has rescued us from and saved us from. Flip over one chapter to Ephesians 2. Just like one page in your Bible forward. And this is going to show us just how bad our situation is before God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Like, in other words, you had no spiritual vitality. There was nothing in you that said, I want God. Spiritually speaking, you were a corpse. You were absolutely dead on the spiritual sensitivity scale. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but it gets much worse. Verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. Not only are we dead in our sin, but when we were born, we all made a willful decision to run as fast as we could to the wrong team, to the wrong leader, namely Satan. John 8, 44 goes a step further and says, you're actually a son of his. He is a father to you. We have chosen the wrong daddy. The devil is our dad when we're born. That is how terrible our situation is. It gets worse. Verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature, by nature, we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let me just give you a visual picture of what it means to be born into our sin-soaked world. When a human being is born, every man, every woman, we are born in to what we'll call the valley of sin. We are born. This is where we take up residence when we are born on, into this world. We are in the valley of sin. And for most people, we're living in here, down here in the valley, and we are completely, most people, absolutely unaware that up on the mountain that's, that looks over this valley, there is a huge dam up there. And behind that dam is a huge body of water that we'll call the water of God's wrath. And most people that are born right now living in the valley of sin down here are completely unaware that there is going to be a day where that dam breaks and the water of God's wrath sweeps us away. We are unaware of that. This is how bad our situation is. It is desperate. But look at verse four. But God, we're in the valley of sin that the water of God's wrath is about to, the water of God's wrath is about to break into our life, sweeping us away. But God, but God slaughtered His own Son. That the water of God's wrath broke into His Son's life, so that it wouldn't have to break into ours. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, living in the valley of sin, making us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You could also say verse four like this, but God, Ephesians one, in love predestined us for adoption as sons. In the valley of sin, the water of God's wrath about to break all over our life, killing and demolishing everything. But God came and rescued us, took us into his family and called us his own. This is the wonder of adoption, isn't it? This is what we have been saved from in our adoption by God. Here's number four. 
Number four, adoption involves a legal change. If you know someone that has horizontally adopted another human being, you know that there's been this moment where they have stood before a judge and a judge has looked at this new family and said, you are now a son or daughter of theirs. And they are now parents, mommy and daddy to you. There has been this, this moment where legally a judge has spoken and statuses have been changed. You have now become a son or daughter. They have now become parents. The status is forever changed. How much more so in our vertical adoption? Look at Ephesians 1.5. In love, he predestined us for adoption. And then we've got two words that follow it. For adoption as sons. That's the legal change in status. There has been a new identity bestowed upon you. There has been a new pronouncement over your life that your legal status is forever changed. You are now a son or daughter of God. This is what you are if you're in Christ. Now, okay, we've got to see this because I think a lot of us are confused about the way that God loves Christians. And I just want to be absolutely clear on this, that there are two ways that God loves spills into the world. There, you know, in one sense, every, every person on the planet is a son or daughter of God. And I'm going to call that in a creational way. That God created every son, you know, every person. So in that way, in a creational way, we are all sons and daughters of God. But here's the problem. We rebelled against God, fired the first shot at God, moved away from God, no longer in the garden with God. We no longer have relationship with God. So although creationally we are sons and daughters, relationally we are not. And there is a difference in how God loves creation sons and daughters, and relational sons and daughters. There is a difference in those two things. The the way God loves the world at large, creational sons and daughters, is different than the way he loves specifically a Christian who is a son or daughter of his in the most relational way possible as a father. I I think some of us just need to hear this right now this morning. That if you're in Christ, this is the way God loves you. Not in a generic, I love the whole world way. In a very specific, father loving a son or daughter way. That's how God loves you. I like how one pastor said it. He said, you will never feel the fullness of God's love until you understand the kind of love he has for you. Are you tracking with that? You will, never, you will never fully feel God's love for you until you understand what kind of love he has for you. Namely, the love of a father for a son. A father for a daughter. Now, I've got three kids, five, three, and two. And I have been absolutely shocked as a dad how much I've grown to love three kids. I mean, I'm shocked, floored. I did not know another human being could love another human being like that. No idea that that's true. I mean, over the last few years, God has just like taken my heart and ju- it is just like exploded with love for them to the point that I would say this. When I look at Caleb, I'll say this to all my kids sometimes. It's not just that I love you. It's more than that. I love loving you. That's how I love you. See, there's a difference in those two things. It's not just that I love them. It is that I love loving them. The fact that I get to love them, I love that. I love loving them. Can I just tell you that this morning? The doctrine of adoption is saying this to every Christian in the room. When God looks at you, he doesn't just love you. He loves loving you. He loves you like that. A fatherly affection for you. 
Our adoption, our adoption involves a legal change. Here's the fifth one. Adoption makes us an heir. Adoption makes us an heir. So horizontally, this plays out. When you adopt a person into your home, a son or daughter, in one way, you are making a, it's a present day experience. They are now a son or daughter of yours, but you are also making future promises to that, that present day son or daughter. You're also saying for the rest of my life, all that I have, all that I am will be leveraged for your good on your behalf. All of my wealth is now your wealth. All, every, every bit of power and strength that I have is now your strength and power. All that I have is, is yours. That's the future promise of adoption. And as true as that is horizontally, it's even more true of God vertically when he adopts us. So go back to Galatians really quick. Uh, flip over to Galatians chapter 4. It's going to be on the screen for you if you need it. Uh, Galatians chapter 4. Ephesians 1.11 gets at this. It talks about inheritance, but Galatians 4 makes this really clear uh, to us. On vertical adoption, that God makes present, you know, it's a present experience. We are right now son or daughter, but he also makes these future promises. Look at Galatians 4, starting in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now it's interesting in this passage in Galatians here, Paul is looking at a church that has men and women in it. And he's looking at all of them and he's calling all of them sons. Now, ladies, before you get too offended at that, you need to know that in Ephesians 5, he looks at the church and calls all of us men and women brides. So I'm, I'm even saying we've got it worse in Ephesians 5, right? So he's looking at the church and he's saying, you're all sons. And he's doing that on purpose. He is intentionally subverting um, kind of the culture that he's in. He's trying to show something big and beautiful by looking at men and women and saying, you are sons of God. See, in the Roman world they lived in, a woman would have no right to the inheritance. It would be unthinkable in that culture for a, a man to look at his daughter and say, here is all my wealth, you can have it. That's not how it worked. That always passed to the son. So sonship in that culture meant authority, influence, inheritance. It meant all of those things. So what Paul is doing here, he's not being like anti-women. He's actually being pro-women. He's showing just how inclusive the gospel is to both man and woman. He's looking at a church full of men and women and he's saying, do you see what I'm saying, especially to you ladies right here? That this promise of inheritance, all that God is promising in your future for you, he is equally generous with you to that as he is every guy in the room with that. See, the point that Paul is getting at here is he's saying, if you're a son or daughter of God, he has immeasurable wealth and he is not stingy with that wealth. He is looking at every one of his adopted sons and daughters and he is saying this, everything that I have is now yours. I'm not holding it back from any one of my sons and daughters. All that I have is yours. See, what Paul is trying to get at, what he's trying to show here, you know, and ultimately, I don't know what all this inheritance thing means. I know God owns it all, and he's saying he's going to give it all to us. But I know that this is the point Paul is trying to make here, that as great as your pardon before God the judge is, which is a great thing, isn't it? As great as your perfection 
This is that justification idea before God the judge is. That's a wonderful thing. As great as your present day experience of adoption is, like right now you're a son or daughter of God, as great as all of those are, Paul is saying this. You've got this inheritance coming. And can I just tell you, the best is yet to come for you. You've got this present experience as sons and daughters, but, but, but the best, like the best part of this, it's coming for you. It's still out in the future for you. The best is yet to come. That's what he's reminding them of here. Russell Moore wrote a book called Adopted for Life. I think it's probably the best book on adoption that I have read. I would totally recommend it, especially for all families who are like seriously considering adoption, Adopted for Life, you need to read it. He describes this experience of when he and his wife, Maria, went to Russia to adopt their two boys. And listen to what he says about it. When Maria and I at long last received the call that the legal process was over and we returned to Russia to pick up our new sons, we found that their transformation from orphanage to family was more difficult than we had supposed. We dressed the boys in outfits our parents had bought for them. We nodded our thanks to the orphanage personnel and walked into the sunlight to the terror of the two boys. They had never seen the sun and they had never felt the wind. They had never heard the sound of a car door slamming or felt like they were being carried along a road at up 100 miles per hour in a car. I noticed looking back as they're leaving the orphanage, I noticed that they were shaking and reaching back to the orphanage in the distance. I whispered to Sergi, who is now named Timothy, that place is a pit. If you only knew what's waiting for you, a home with a mommy and a daddy who love you and grandparents and great-grandparents and cousins and playmates and McDonald's Happy Meals. But all they knew was the orphanage. It was squalid, but they had no other reference point. It was home to them. And he goes on to say this, my whispering to my boys, you won't miss that orphanage is only a shadow of something I should have known already. Our father tells us that we too are unable to grasp what's waiting for us and how glorious it really is. It's hard for us to long for an inheritance to come, this harmonious Christ-ruled universe, when we've never seen anything like it. It's hard, isn't it? And can I tell you what adoption is trying to remind all of us of? It's God whispering into all of our ears, where you are right now is nothing compared with what's to come. That the best is yet to come if you're a son or daughter of mine. And lastly, and we'll finish with this. Adoption involves the spirit of sonship. It involves the spirit of sonship. So I want you to imagine for a second, you're the family that has... has you know, you've picked up your stuff, you know, your stuff and you've flown somewhere and you have showed up at an orphanage and you hear the story of the three-year-old boy you are about to adopt. And you hear the story that this boy was dropped at this orphanage door when he was born. He's lived every waking moment in this orphanage. He's known nothing but this orphanage. He's never had a mommy or a daddy. He's never had a brother or a sister. He's never had any of those things. This is all he has ever known is life in an orphanage. He has always been an orphan for as long as he knows. And then there's this moment where the legal status changes. You become the mom and dad. He becomes your son and you leave that orphanage and you get home. And this is what you realize in that moment. 
it is much easier to take that little child out of the orphanage than it is to take the orphan out of the little child you just adopted. Are you seeing that? That it is much easier for you to go get a child and, and for you to be mom and dad positionally. The legal status has been declared. You're mom and dad. He's a son. But it is so, that positionally that's happened. He is out of the orphanage. But, but practically, it is so difficult to take the orphan out of a son. Russell Moore, when he's describing the experience that they had when they got back to the States with their two um, sons from Russia, he describes how they knew that their sons were finally starting to more and more feel like sons and not like orphans. And he describes this moment of realizing they have stopped grabbing and hiding food everywhere they could in fear that they wouldn't get a next meal and actually started trusting mom and dad are going to provide the next meal. See, that, that's, that's how difficult it is to take the orphan out of a person. Now, that is a sad but apt picture of exactly where many of us live in terms of horizontal adoption. See, positionally, God has pronounced over our life, I'm a father for you. I have done everything needed to clear the way to adopt you into my home. This is your room. I'm your dad. You're my son. You're my daughter. Everything has been cleared. It has been, the the legal status has been changed. Everything is is, is done positionally. But, But you know what's really difficult for all of us in the room? Is to practically feel deep down in our bones that we're not an orphan. What's hard is for us deep down in our bones to really look at God and really say and believe, you are a dad to me. I am a son to you. I am a daughter to you. That is hard. And this is why Galatians 4, 6 is so great. Galatians 4, 6 says this, and because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, do you know why the Spirit of God, if you're in Christ, do you know why the Spirit of God resides in you right now? Do you know the primary, like why the Spirit of God has taken up residence in you, made a home in you? Do you know the primary job of the Holy Spirit right now in your life, what that is? Here's what Galatians 4, 6 is telling us. The primary job of the Holy Spirit is to convince your heart that you can look up at God and say, Abba. That's what the Spirit of God is doing right now in your heart. Like the spirit that lives in you right now, the main goal of that is to convince you that you're no longer an orphan. Like what's positionally true of you, the main job of the spirit is for you to practically feel that, to know that, to believe that like you can look up at God and really know and believe God is a father and you can speak to him like a three-year-old running to his dad saying, Abba, daddy, you are mine, help. You can go to God like that because God is your father. You can be absolutely convinced. This is the Spirit's job in your life is to absolutely convince you that you can cry out, Abba, Father. And if you're in Christ, that you actually have a father who hears your voice, who cares for you, who loves you, who wants you, who has pledged himself to you. And can I just tell you, that's true for all of us right now. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.